Welcome, everyone. Um, if you're here for the first time tonight, a special welcome. Um, over the last year, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, and uh, this little uh, slideshow here gives you the, the kind of insight, if you haven't been with us, the key theme that we've been looking at in this book of Ephesians is the eternal purpose of God. Um, and the climax of that eternal purpose is a marriage covenant that we've been hearing about this message, this reality of the bride of Christ. And so we've been tracking pretty well. It's December, or you know, start of December, and we're in the, the final kind of clutches of this book. But uh, don't go to sleep right yet. There's uh, a lot more to draw from these last final scriptures in this food source called Ephesians that we're going to look at. And so over the last few weeks in particular, we've been looking at the armor of God. Paul preached last week about what? Oh, you could hear a pin drop. About the helmet of salvation. So we've heard about the helmet of salvation. We've heard about the breastplate of righteousness the feet that have been shod with the gospel of peace. We've heard about the shield of faith that's able to extinguish all of these flaming arrows. In Ephesians 6, it says that we are to put on this armor of God that we may stand firm and resist the schemes of the devil. Now, up until this point, all of these pieces of armor have seemed, would you say, relatively defensive, Potentially, it might seem like that. You've got your, you've got your helmet, you've got your breastplate, you've got your shield that's able to shield you from all the arrows of the devil. You know, up until this point, you could have the misconception that the armor of God is about preparing, getting yourself ready, hiding in the corner, putting your shield up, and you're safe at last. I'm safe. I've got my shield. I'm hiding. I'm camping out until I'm raptured out of here. The day has come. See you later, suckers. Uh, I'm out of here. Big time defense mode. We're in a war, but actually we're hibernating, protecting ourselves, guarding ourselves, because we've got the armor of God around us, beside us, protecting us from anything that's going on out there that could possibly in any way harm or influence or, you know, I don't know, break my fingernail or something like that. <laughs> so Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, it's interesting language. I mean, you're coming to a, a service, the gathering of the saints, the church of God, and you're hearing about a, a, a war, a battle. Is that... I wonder if that's in your present consciousness that you see this whole scenario that we're involved in, life itself as being a battlefield, a war ground. Is that in your conscious mind as you go through life that we're in a war? You know, generally the, what is highlighted in the Scriptures is this Jesus and you know, we have sayings like this, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, this Jesus, that's about peace and getting on with each other. You know, we hear things like this about his companion, the Holy Spirit, who I've heard over and over and over again has been talked about as a gentleman. Have you heard that saying before? Have you seen that in the scriptures? Oh, because actually I'm just looking at Ephesians here and he says um, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. I wonder if you thought of the Holy Spirit as a sword-wheeling warrior <laughs> ready to cut, pierce, divide soul and spirit joints and marrow. Have you encountered that Holy Spirit? <laughs> a few less confident nods. <laughs> Sure. Oh, and you take one for the team, my man. Yeah, 
it seems to be a bizarre concept that the scriptures would say that you are in a war. Did you come prepared for a war this evening? Are you prepared for a war when you step out of your door on Monday morning? You know, we've had prophecies in this house about two ships. One ship being a cruise liner where everyone comes and they have a cup of tea, sit down, have a bit of a gossip with your buddies. And then all of a sudden, it's action stations as the ship transitions from being a cruise liner to being a battleship where everyone knows their place. Everyone has a role and a part to play. It's intentional. It's focused. It's moving to a specific destination. Now that is the reality of the gospel and the scriptures that I read about here in Ephesians. 1 Timothy 6.12 says this, that we're to fight the good fight of faith and to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. There's a good fight of faith that you ought to be involved in. What for? Well, it tells you straight away. It leaves nothing to chance. Fight the good fight of faith that you may take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, wait a minute. Is the battle not over? Is the victory not won? Then why do we need to take and fight this good fight of faith? It says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So there's a battle, but the battle's been won, right? So I wonder if the gospel is now not about winning the battle, but about having the reality of the completed and won, finished battle manifested in our hearts. It's called the eternal life of God. That while the battle is won, I wonder if the battle is won. You tell me. Look at your own life. Now, the scriptures tell me that the battle's been won. That is truth that has been established before the foundations of the world. It's more solid than the ground we stand on. But he wants to take that battle that's been won, that truth, that firm foundation, and he wants that battle not just to be won out there. He wants the reality of the completed, finished, accomplished battle to be fully formed in our hearts, that the eternal life would be truly and actually laid hold of, that we would walk about victorious. It says that, that the saints of God, that the church are to reign in life through Jesus Christ. Are you reigning in life? Is your soul now in submission to him because the word, the sword of the spirit has cut and divided, pierced your innermost being and won a victory on the inside that was won for you 2,000 years ago? So I put here, if you're writing notes, you can jot this down. It's not going to be hard to forget. Point number one is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an offensive message. Offensive, not offensive in the sense that it offends you. It's offensive in the sense that it's forward moving. Now, all of these other pieces of armor that we've heard up until this point, you could almost say sound like they might be defensive, right? But the sword of the Spirit, there's absolutely no denying that a sword as an offensive weapon, right? You wouldn't use a sword to hibernate down in the corner and just shelter from the things of life. It's useless. It's not, you've got an arrow coming towards you, get away, unless it's a lightsaber. It's got to do you absolutely no good. So put here the sword of the Spirit. Now, if you don't rem- now remember this. This is the catchphrase for the night. The best defense is a good offense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. So it says this. Put on the armor of God that you may stand firm and resist the schemes of the devil. 
Sounds like a defensive statement, right? Actually, this gospel is not, it's defensive, but it's primarily offensive. And the best defense is actually a good offense. I put here, for too long the gospel has been preached as a defensive rescue mission as opposed to an offensive promise that we lay hold of by faith. You know, Matthew says that the kingdom is forcefully advancing and violent men lay hold of it. Do we have any violent men in this room? Good. Good answer. Because it can be so easy to get the perception of Christians as being these placid, floppy fish. (laughs) And that this gospel is for people who don't have anything better to do with their time or with their lives. Actually, the kingdom is forcefully advancing, and it's the violent men that will lay hold of it. Listen to these scriptures, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. This is, these are offensive scriptures. Do you not know that those who run, in a, uh, who run, run uh, let, uh, let me start this again. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Sound offensive to you? Run in such a way as you might win. Compete box in such a way as you're not hitting aimlessly, hit in such a way that you can knock out your opponent. Is this not not strong language for meek and mild little Christians? Maybe there's a reality in the gospel that we haven't laid hold of. Now, let me illustrate this point. I'm a, for those who don't know me very well, I'm a big-time basketball fan. I enjoy playing basketball, sometimes watching basketball. And there's a team in the, at the moment in the NBA called the Golden State Warriors. Has anyone ever heard of them before? Now, traditionally, basketball is all about the big boys, the big players, right? I have people coming up to me on a semi-regular basis and saying things like, Oh, you're nice and tall. You must be good at basketball. <laughs> Tess, who's also nice and tall and can't actually catch a ball properly. <laughs> also, just kidding. Tess has lots of talents, but sports coordination, uh, wouldn't you say? Is not one of them. She gets the same comments because she's tall, right? And for the last kind of 100, 200 years that basketball's been around, basketball's been a big men's sport. The big guys guard the rim. You imagine someone trying to do a layup at the rim and you've got, you know, someone like Tess bearing down on them, defending that rim. Basketball was all about size, and basketball size does matter for the last 200 years. But there's this team. Oh, let, hey, let me just... Okay, so, so the defense, the big guys play the defense, right? And if you have a good defense, you are almost certain to win the game. You would stop people scoring, and that would be that. Now, this team, the Golden State Warriors, are a bit unique. And in the last year or two, they have revolutionized the basketball world from now, and I don't believe the basketball game will ever go back to being the way it was. Why is that? So these team, the Golden State Warriors, came up with a genius brainwave. In basketball, you've got two-pointers, which are the ones you shoot closer to the hoop, and then you've got three-pointers, the ones you shoot back from the hoop, right? Your big guys generally shoot these two-pointers, and your little guys are generally on the outside knocking down your three-pointers, right? Now, the Golden State Warriors, I mean, this basketball game's been around for a long time, and I'm not just not sure you know, what their thinking was before or if they were that 
particularly intelligent, but they've worked out that actually, two, that actually three points are worth more than two points <laughs> in a basketball game. So what they did is they said, okay, well, three points are going to get us more, so we'll just focus on the three-pointers. Now, in a basketball team, you normally have five guys. Generally, four of them are massive, and you can get away with having one that's a short little guy. The Golden State Warriors have five not-too-big players that they play all out on the basketball court at the same time. And all of them stand out behind a three-pointer and just let it rain. Time and time and time again, they just let it rip from outside the three-point line. Now, when this first started going on, there were comments around the NBA, this is totally unsustainable. These guys cannot keep shooting these three-pointers day in, day out. But turns out, they can. <laughs> and they said, well, what's going to go down on defense? How are they going to stop the other team from scoring? Doesn't matter. When they were down, letting it rain from the three-point line, the other team come down and lay out for the two points. Oh, you're still losing. <laughs> so this team, the Golden State Warriors, let it rip from three-point land. And this became so infuriating for other teams. So what would happen? Steph Curry would come down and knock down a three-pointer from probably about half midway through the court. The other team would battle and fight and strain and get their two-pointer. And then the next time down the court, they'd pass to Clay Thompson and he'd knock down the three-pointer. And all of a sudden, it's 6-4. And so this became so infuriating for other teams that they lost and continue to lose all momentum, all drive. The entire momentum of the game would swing towards the Golden State Warriors that even teams would struggle to knock down two-pointers because they were so frustrated that they and all their efforts could not seem to get a lead in front of these Golden State Warriors. So my point is this, the best defense is a good offense. This is the secret that the Golden State Warriors have won, and they're on their way to being one of the most successful basketball players of all times. See, defensive people are always responding to the things that are external of them. If you're on defense and the other team is shooting, you're always reacting to how someone else is doing, how someone else is going. You're always manipulated, jerked, changed around by how someone else is performing, and that has an influence on you. When you are offensive, what someone else is doing and what's going on around you cannot in any way, shape, or form define or shape what is going on within you and that you are moving forward to win the prize, to claim the goal, to knock down the three-pointer, to win the game. Defensive people are only concerned with the things going on around them, but offensive people are concerned with things that are going on within them. See, the Golden State Warriors weren't concerned about what the other teams would throw at them, but they were concerned about what was going on within them their team culture, the way that they played, the offensive effort that they laid down night in, night out. Bringing this back to the scriptures. I said this before, for too long the gospel has been preached as a defensive rescue mission as opposed to an offensive reality that we had to lay hold of through faith. What does a defensive mindset look like for a Christian? It looks at continually asking for forgiveness to be rescued from who you thought you were, as opposed to believing who you were always called to be. It looks like getting angry and apologizing to the person for your anger. It looks like looking at a woman lustfully and saying sorry to your wife for your mind going astray or whatever. An offensive message, an offensive Christian, has the reality of the kingdom of God formed and established in their hearts and minds 
so that instead of getting angry, the sword of the Spirit comes and does a work that they see people in a completely different light. In a marriage, it looks like seeing women through the lens of covenant as opposed to pieces of flesh that you can look at. See, a defensive mindset will apologize for who you think you are, but an offensive mindset will truly repent and realign your mind and your thinking to who you're always called to be. You'll step in it and you'll live it out. It's truly and utterly indestructible. Listen to this baby. It says this, Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, and all other things will be added to you. Now you tell me, is that an offensive mindset, or is that a defensive one? But we don't have enough money. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. But I don't have enough time. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. But my kids are so annoying. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. But my wife is always nagging. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. You see, a defensive mindset will always put the focus on something going on out there. It will always blame someone for why you're not living the life that you were always predestined to live. An offensive mindset will take absolute responsibility for seeking first the kingdom and its righteousness. Oh, wait, and all things will be added. See, when you're offensive, you will be defensive, right? When you are offensive, you will naturally overcome the things that you are struggling with time and time again. You see, when you start to take, take, for example, in a marriage, when you start to see your wife in a true covenant relationship, naturally and intrinsically, there will be an influence in the way that you interact with each other that can only come from you taking responsibility from what's in you and allowing that to influence the character, I mean, sorry, the environment and the culture of your home, right? Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, and all other things will be added to you. It's truly offensive. It doesn't worry about the other things, what you will eat, what you will wear, because you know that God will take care of those things because he has become your source. You seek first him, you receive him, and all other things will be added. See, I'm not against defense. I'm for defense, but there's a one and two here. The defense is tucked right into the pocket of offense. And see, from being continually defensive, continually allowing the things of life to define who you are, you'll never be able to be offensive. But if you're truly offensive, allowing Christ to shape your inner man, allowing the soul, the the, the word of God to shape your soul, to pierce your heart, you will then naturally be defensive in every way and overcome every scheme of the devil. Point number two. It is the Word of God that does this offensive work within us. Let's grab this. Oh, is that yours? Have you drinking out of it? It's all right, we're one. It is the word, that's point number two, it is the word of God that does this offensive work within us. I'll put here, a defensive word blesses while an offensive word builds. It's the word of God that builds us into mature followers of Christ. You see, there's this interaction between Peter and Jesus. You know, Jesus comes up to Peter and says, who do people say that I am? And there's a whole range of different responses from the entire crowd. Some people say, oh, look, you're a, you're a prophet. You're a good man. You're this, you're that. But Jesus says to Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says this. He says, um, he says that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And he says this. 
on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail or not overcome against it. You see, Peter had come into an offensive way of thinking through revelation by the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter, in this interaction with with Jesus, there was absolutely no way in the world that he could have possibly come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Son of God apart from by revelation through the Holy Spirit. Right? All right. So we've heard about the other pieces of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. You could say the same thing. There's no other way that you could possibly come to the conclusion that you are righteous in God unless it comes through the piercing of the Holy Spirit, cutting and dividing the way that you think your soul realm and bringing you into a revelation that's heavenly and divine. Has anyone else here woken up and just thought, oh my goodness, I'm righteous? No, because everything inside of you and your old nature screams at you, you're not. And so there needs to be an offensive work that takes place in Peter's mind. The sword of the Spirit needs to come and cut and divide, taking him from what he used to think into a whole new realm of thinking. You see, repentance is absolutely and totally offensive. Apologizing is totally and completely defensive. You know, when I was preparing this, I went and did a quick little word search in my, got a new phone, I got the Bible app now. It's cutting edge technology. (laughs) So I searched up the word sorry and apologize. And did you know that there is not one single time in all of Scripture that someone says sorry for their sins? And there's not one single time in all of Scripture where someone apologizes for their sins. Isn't that interesting? And yet the modern day gospel has been preached as almost like apologize for your sins and that's what repentance is. Actually, repentance is totally offensive. Repentance means to literally change the way you think or to have the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, penetrate your inner realm to such an extent that you go from believing a lie to believing the truth. You see, repentance is an entirely offensive word. When you repent, you acknowledge who you were always called to be from the beginning of creation, and you step into it. When you apologize, you say sorry for who you were, and you stay that way. It doesn't move you. It doesn't drive you. It doesn't compel you forward. Repentance always moves you forward. And that's why repentance always leads to freedom and life. And apologizing always leads to condemnation and death because you'll go round and round and round and round and round the same mountain. And the word of God will be like a seed thrown onto hard and rocky soil that bears no fruit. But exactly the same situation comes up And the sword of the word pierces your inner core and reveals to you your true state. And in heartfelt repentance, you say, God, thank you that you have called me before the creation of the world. Thank you that you've sent your son and that your blood covers me. Thank you that I've been made righteous in your sight. I'm absolutely in letting go. I'm not letting that sin entangle me and I'm stepping forward into everything that you have called me to be. I'm going to be an offensive person from now on moving forward. I'm not letting that lie tell me or manipulate me or make me act like who I'm not. I'm going to step into who I've been called to be. It's an offensive word. It's an offensive reality. The word of God is an offensive word that pierces and divides It penetrates soul and spirit, 
even to the division of joints and marrow. It will get right down into the nitty-gritty and yank every single lie out of your heart and mind that's holding you back from truly knowing him and becoming like him. Can you see why the Holy Spirit can't be a gentleman in this context? The Holy Spirit is a warrior. You know, in Revelation, it says that Jesus will stand at the door and knock. And that knock is not like a little... He is like the most persistent door-to-door salesman that you will ever see. He is banging down the door and he's not going away. Until the lies that you believe about yourself and about who you are are completely kicked to the curb. Until the sword is drawn and pierces your inner realm until you see and think like him. Until you walk out of an encounter with him, having been changed and transformed and now living out the reality of who he's always called you to be. I've got an example for you. It's in Luke. Chapter 2. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just kind of skim over it. And now there's a lot of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And at the beginning of Luke, there's a particular time where it seems like almost everyone is prophesying over Mary and Joseph as to who their son's going to be. And so there's this uh, prophecy by Zacharias, and he's, you know, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies this. Blessed be the, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a hall of salvation for us in the house of David, a servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all those who hate us to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, being called prophet of the Most High, will go on to before, uh, before the Lord to prepare his ways. So there's this awesome prophecy about Jesus and about John the Baptist. And Mary and Joseph are hearing this awesome prophecy about their son. And they're, oh my goodness, our son is just cracked up to be this most amazing guy. And so next day they come back into the temple and Jesus is presented at the temple. And there's a guy there who picks up Jesus and blesses him. And he's been waiting his entire life for this Son, Jesus, to be born. He says this. He says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. All right, listen to this. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed the child and said to his mother, uh, to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and as for a sign uh, and, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So there's these scriptures, these prophecies, this reality that is being proclaimed by the prophets. The son who will come and he will bring, what does it say? He will grant us that being rescued from the hands of our enemies, we might serve him without fear. These incredible prophecies about this Jesus who will rescue and save and deliver, who will do this amazing defensive work for the people of God. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. They were amazed at the things which are being said about him. See, these prophecies about Jesus were being said out here. But now, listen, the sword of the Lord is about to come and take these prophecies, these promises from being out here. And he says this, but the sword of the Lord will pierce even your own soul. You see, these prophecies were sounding like they were going to be defensive about a son who would redeem and heal the nation. And the prophet 
says, hold on, wait a minute. Don't get too excited. Don't get too attached to your son in an earthly way. Don't draw your identity from the success of your son and who he was called to be because the sword of the Lord is about to come and pierce even your own soul. That this prophecy about the son was not about a son that was out here who would do things for you, who would rescue. It was about a son who would come, penetrate, cut, divide, that the sword would come, pierce your own soul and do a work within you. See, it's a new, it's a new dawn, it's a new day. And as the song says, we're feeling good, but we're not feeling, we're feeling good until the sword comes. We're rejoicing in the promises that we're here to defend you, rescue you, save you from your enemies. Oh, but wait, the salvation that you need this time. Hey, see, I've been saving you, says the Lord, for 2,000 years like that. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. The sword needs to come and take these prophecies from being out here, from being defensive, to come and to pierce and to become right here. See, the son was given not to do things for you, but to come and pierce and to do something in you. So wait a minute, Mary. Don't rejoice in your fleshly relationship with your son. Rejoice in the fact that he has come to usher in a new kingdom, this new heavenly realm. Rejoice in a new kind of connectedness and relationship. Not mutual life-sucking from each other, but come with me into a unity of the Spirit. Let that sword pierce your own soul and value me for what I can do in you and not just what I can do for you. See, it's an offensive message. The, soul needs, uh, the sword needs to come and cut and divide penetrate even your own soul, even yours, even yours, even yours, even yours, even yours, even yours, even your own soul. You know, in messages like this, it's so easy to just nudge the person next to you. Hey, are you hearing, are you hearing this word? Have you heard? Have you changed? Oh, sorry. Ding, 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 ding. Wrong answer. Even your own soul. Even your own soul. You see, everything that we need is contained within that living word. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword able to divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. See, there were a group of people, probably about 4,000 years ago, who had to wrestle with the same word that we're hearing tonight. They were called the Israelites. And see, God had promised them that he would bring them into this promised land, this land flowing of milk and honey. And so he comes and they are groaning under the weight of slavery in Egypt. I love what Cena brought this morning. I think we're going to be taking a sword to a few golden cats tonight. <laughs> you got that, eh, Cena? <laughs> See, these Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, and God comes to their defense, and he rescues them out of the land of slavery. You see, his first miracle is, you know, to go and have this big-time confrontation with the Pharaoh. They go through, what is it, 10 plagues, 10 miracles. The last one is they put this blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses and all of their children are saved from certain death. And an entire nation gets wiped out in a night, having not had the, entire, uh, the, the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses. 
It's like waking up in the morning and Tawa is toast. It's gone for her. It's done and dusted. Overnight, boom, gone. Now that's a miracle. <laughs> oh, sorry. <I> <laughs> All right. That, <laughs> that was totally unintentional. <laughs> I don't have anything against Tawa if you live in Tawa. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bring, bring it back, bring it back. All right, have a drink. <laughs> Man, I'm going to faint. I'm having too much fun up here. <laughs> All right. Next miracle. The Javel people were heading down to Lyle Bay for a casual surf trip. And all of a sudden, the entire Cook Strait opens up. And the sea parts its waves. And it's like dry land from all the way here to Picton. And they escape the remaining people from Tawa who <laughs> were in hot pursuit looking to claim their lives. See, I'm making fun of it. I'm, I'm having a bit of a laugh. But this is... These miracles are big time. An entire sea opens up right in front of their eyes and they pass on dry ground through the side of these walls of water onto the other side into safety. Man, God's defensive power is unbelievable. These Israelites see the most amazing, breathtaking displays of God's might and power. His defensive work to rescue them, pluck them from the hand of slavery, and bring them out through the Red Sea to safety. Isn't that, it's just so mind-blowing that you cannot comprehend about how powerful and awesome this work of God was. And so he brings them out into the wilderness. What a climax. What a place to end. What, what, a, like, what a landing pad for these great and miraculous miracles. And yet, to be completely honest, for the majority of the church who have been rescued by the divine power of God, who have been forgiven from their sins, spared from eternal eternity away from God and brought out by his mighty power, see this as the end goal, the done and dusted completion of God's work, rescued by his mighty power, his hand, his miracles, but are now camping out, like Sina shared this morning, in the wilderness. But he brings them out into the wilderness and begins to speak to them a building word, not about their rescue but about their inheritance. About laying hold of a land that he had freely given to them. About believing that he who was faithful to come to their defense in Egypt would also be faithful in their offense in laying hold of this promised land through faith. So he feeds them with manna, another divine miracle, and they eat they complain about it. They wish that they could have steak and chips instead of this living manna falling from heaven. And they ate this bread that was coming. They received this manna, this word from God, which nourished and fed their bodies. And they ate physically, but they failed to eat spiritually. You see, this is something that feel like the Holy Spirit has been talking to Tess and I a lot about recently. About a year ago, we went away, a few of the guys, for a, like a prayer weekend the way we were fasting, and God was speaking to me about fasting and about eating from another food source. And he spoke to me specifically about there being a physical kind of element to it and that was preparing for a fast. And the first step was to, to give up having um, caffeine and sugar in our regular diet. And so 
um, a couple of months later, we talked with Tess about it, and we decided that, you know, we, we were talking, you know, about this invitation that God had given us to eat of bread that doesn't perish. You know, we were living on, you know, caffeine and sugar day in and day out, and um, there was, yeah, he invited us physically to not, to, to get our diet sorted out and to start eating healthily. And so I was just chatting. Uh, so when we started the diet, I was all, all good and happy until day one kicked in. <laughs> Hour two, day one. And I was getting these big time withdrawal headaches. <laughs> I like, I couldn't think. The, my headache was like pulsating out of my eyes. And it's like, I'm not like a, I didn't think I was a caffeine addict. <laughs> I had to have one coffee a day, maybe two at the absolute most. And sugar, I mean, we just had a few, you know, lollies and chocolates here and there. But somewhere along the road, our bodies had become conditioned to needing the sugar to function and to operate. And so it wasn't until I hit that moment, hour two, day one, that I was like, oh my goodness, my body has been sucking life from a life source that it shouldn't, that it shouldn't be. Now, there's nothing wrong with sugar and caffeine, and I still have a coffee, and I still have a you know, chocolate every now and then, and it's cool. And yet, the issue was not that we have it, the issue that I was living on it. And I chatted with my, my young friends uh, who's just asking what he'd been up to, and I shared, look, I just cut out caffeine, and I was having these big-time headaches. His dad's a drug dealer, so in his mind, he said, bro, he's like, you are like totally having withdrawals. That's exactly what it's like being on drugs. <laughs> and see, and it was, caffeine, sugar are like drugs. And see, the things living from the life source that's earthly is like a drug. There's nothing wrong with having things of the world, but it's when they become our life source, then we're in real trouble. It says, do not work for food that perishes, but food that endures to eternal life. See, the Israelites in Egypt were accustomed to eating meat. And God says, look, I want to take you out. And now, for me and in, in my journey, the one thing that got me through was knowing that these withdrawals were because I had been consuming something that ultimately wasn't benefiting my body. And so I had the perspective to see that for what it was. My body was never designed to function on caffeine and sugar alone. And see, the Israelites were functioning on bread that perishes. My body was never supposed to function on caffeine and sugar alone. It was always supposed to function on good, hearty vegetables, five plus a day, and all of that. As believers, as followers of Christ, we were never made... For the things of this world. We were made for the things of heaven and eternity. We were made to eat of a food source that's heavenly and divine. And the word of God is that eternal food source. The Israelites were led out into the wilderness to transition, not to fast, but to transition from having minds that were set and fed and fueled by the things of the world, that they could truly eat of what was heavenly and divine. I'm going to have to fly real quick through the last of this. We haven't even got to the scripture. <laughs> Maybe I should. Um, how much time do we have? A couple of minutes. All right. I'll just fly through this real quick. So this, I'm about halfway through to my notes. This is supposed to be like the, <laughs> the, 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 the <laughs> this is probably the first time this happened to me. Uh, <laughs> all right, so it says, it says, therefore let us fear if by a promise of entering his rest or sands that any one of you may have seemed to come short of it. But the good news that they had preached to them didn't profit them because it was not united by faith. And those who heard. All right. 
So after all the miracles, after the coming through the Red Sea, after the being fed by this living manna falling from heaven, are you saying that the word did not profit them? God's defense did not profit them? His miraculous power, his great might, his strong arm, his outstretched hand did not profit them? Why not? Because the word that they heard was not united by faith. Because the defense that was supposed to propel them into this heavenly and eternal calling, this offensive life, this true kingdom substance within them, did not fulfill the ultimate purpose of preparing the people of God for what they were always predestined for, the promised land. So this word, this living word, this sword that cuts and divides, this saving power, this work that God has done for us, has to then be done within us for it to accomplish the work that it was sent and predestined to accomplish. I'll wrap it up there. So Father, we just pray that we would be able to hear and receive this word, not a word, not a word from a preacher, but the eternal, living, penetrating power, food source, life source, substance, the reality of Christ within us that takes us from being defensive to truly being offensive, laying hold of everything for what we've been laid hold of for, living out, walking out, stepping into claiming, obtaining, winning the prize. Father, we thank you for your power, your, your Holy Spirit that cuts, divides, and does this powerful work within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, just before we get into dialogue, um, 16th the last night, what we want to do is just have a whole night of Q&A, but have like three or four people here as a panel that we can all ask questions that have been teaching on the book of Ephesians. And so what we want you to do is start thinking about the questions that you've got and let's filter them through so the night so we can all learn from one another but unpack this even more. So you might be going like, can you explain what the bride is again? Can you explain the sin inheritance? Can you explain the fivefold? Can you explain? So there's so, many, so much stuff in those six chapters. Okay? So start asking him, what are the questions that he wants you to ask forward so you can learn and grow? Is that cool? So not next week, but the week after. Awesome. Thank you. Phenomenal, Mrs. Rackman.